God the King will deliver His anointed King and will bring judgment on His enemy. Morning. What do you expect at the end of a book? Well, I suppose you expect some closure, don't you? You expect some rights to be wronged. You expect the main characters to live maybe happily ever after or relatively happy ever after. And then for some books, there is some sense of closure. But you're also left with some questions. Maybe there were a few cliffhangers that weren't dealt with. And it gets to the point where you get to the end and you're like, oh, this author has been planning a sequel the whole time. We come this morning to the end of the book of 1 Samuel. And the end of 1 Samuel answers some questions. It brings some closure, but there's still obviously more to the story. First and Second Samuel can be go together. They can go together. They should go together. They can be thought of basically as one book. But this is kind of like the end of part one, volume one of the books of Samuel. We began this series in the book of First Samuel at the beginning of June last year. And here we are now at the end of the book with three relatively short chapters to go. And some of you have asked if we would continue in 2 Samuel after this. At least for when I'm preaching, I do plan to uh, take a break and preach from the New Testament next. But for those of you wanting to know what happens after this, you're more than welcome later this week to open up to 2 Samuel and keep reading. And I realize that some of you weren't here as well when we began our study of 1 Samuel. But do you remember how 1 Samuel began? Think back to Hannah, that godly woman who desperately prayed for a child. And after God answered her prayer, giving her her son Samuel, she praised God in this beautiful song of praise. Now Hannah's song sets the stage for this whole book. And looking back on Hannah's song, we can see the, the truths that Hannah sang of were put into vivid color in the stories that followed. So before we get to our, our sermon passage this morning, I do want to read the second half of Hannah's song in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. So with Hannah's song in the back of our minds, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel 29. It's also printed in your bulletins in order to help us understand the meaning of the section from the Bible being preached on a Sunday, the preachers here like to state a main point, a main idea for you to consider. As I was thinking of a main idea for these chapters, I was thinking that, oh, this main idea sounds a lot like a summary of the last verse of Hannah's song that we just read. Hannah prophesied of God's judgment against his enemies. And God's, and God's exalting of His anointed King. And so the main point for 1 Samuel 29 to 31 could be stated this way. God the King will deliver His anointed King and will bring judgment on His enemies. God the King will deliver His anointed King and will bring judgment on his enemies. We'll walk through this main idea in two points. Point one is God's deliverance of his anointed king. We'll look at that in chapters 29 and 30. And then point two is God's judgment on his rejected king. We'll look at that in chapter 31. So let's begin with point one. God's deliverance of his anointed king. Chapters 29 and 30 are two different but related stories that both show God's deliverance of David. And so we'll take these stories one at a time. We had left David's story on a cliffhanger in the first couple verses of chapter 28 as Achish had told David that David would go into battle against Israel. So please look with me at chapter 29 as we continue David's story. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he's deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. 
So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So just think with me what's happening at the beginning of this story. David is in a predicament. He's in a, a lose-lose situation. All the Philistine forces have gathered. The five Philistine lords and their men and Achish, the Philistine lord, brings David and his men to fight against Israel. So what if David fought against his own people? Who would want a traitor for a king? But from what we know of David's character, it would seem more likely that David would lead his men to turn on the Philistine army. There is a reason that David's replies to Achish every time are, are very vague and could be interpreted in more than one way. But even if David had decided in his heart to lead his men in backstabbing the Philistine army, that sounds more dangerous than any escape David has had so far from Saul. But here's where God intervenes. God uses the rational thinking of the other Philistine lords to save David from his predicament. In Achish's mind, David has already turned on his own people. David led him to believe that uh, with his actions. Achish believes that David will serve him forever. But the other commanders, the other Philistines, are not going to take Achish's word for it. The other Philistine lords have not forgotten the song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It seems that everyone knows this song. And the other Philistine lords point out something that I think as we're reading this, we wonder why it wouldn't be obvious. If David did want to return to be in good standing with Saul, wouldn't this be his chance to kill a good number of Philistines in battle? Achish is still not convinced, but he sees that he needs to listen to the four other lords. And, Achish, and in Achish's presence, David, well, basically he's been acting from the beginning, hasn't he? And he continues acting disappointed. He asks, well, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And consider here that perhaps when David speaks of the enemies of his lord, the king, he is not actually speaking of Achish's enemies, but of 
King Saul's enemies or God's enemies. But whatever the case, David simply being dismissed with his men, this seems like the best possible solution. They do not have to march into battle. And Achish still trusts David. David's reputation is protected in more ways than one. So even though the narrator doesn't insert a sentence here saying, look at what God is doing behind the scenes to protect David, I think we can see God's mercy to David in this. Just imagine how betrayed the other Israelites would have been if they looked across enemy lines and they saw David and and 600 men standing there. So can you imagine how relieved David and his men would have felt that they did not have to partake in the battle? They could set off in the early morning for their home, away from home. As we continue to think on on God's deliverance of his anointed king, we're going to go straight into the next chapter. So chapter 30. This picks up when David and his men return to Ziklag. So 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were, with them, who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him into David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swore to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. 
And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who should listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so, how his, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatter, in Eror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakel, in the city of the Jeremalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athok, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So imagine the relief that David and his men felt as they were on their way back to their families, being replaced by tears, bitterness, and anger when they returned to Ziklag. David and his men were not a bunch of college buddies going on a, on a camping trip. They had wives and children back at home or their home away from home. And when they returned to Ziklag, the people who they loved the most had all disappeared, had all been captured, taken hostage. And so David and his men wept until they had no strength to weep. It's hard to imagine how hopeless that situation would have felt. The wives and children of 600 men gone, taken hostage by a band of raiders. And a band of raiders is not going to leave a note saying where they went next. And not only is David overcome with sadness that his own wives and children have been taken away, but he is also faced with the real possibility that his own men will stone him to death. When something so terrible happens, humans look for someone to blame, and David was their leader. He had led them away. He had led the men away from their families. Perhaps taking vengeance on David would be the next best thing in the minds of these men. 
And at this point in our story, we have a key phrase, a key turning point in our story, and that's that David strengthened himself in God. For most of David's sojourn in the land of the Philistines, we had no mention of David's relationship with God. But here, at this hopeless moment, when things couldn't get any worse, David strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. So what does this mean? The language is similar to the time that Jonathan went up and found David in the wilderness. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, it speaks of Jonathan strengthening David's hand in God. He did so by reminding David of the truth of God's promises to David. He reminded David that Saul would not find him and that David would reign as king over Israel. So strengthening himself in God would point to David's clinging to God and to God's promises in this time of great distress. And when David's strengthened in God, David's seeking to trust God, he seeks guidance from God. He asks Abiathar the priest to inquire of the Lord for him. And in contrast to how Saul in the previous chapter asked for a word from the Lord and the Lord did not answer Here David asks if he should pursue this band. God answers with a clear and reassuring promise. God says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And help would come from an unexpected place. David and his men showed mercy and generosity to a starving Egyptian that they found. And in God's good providence, the Egyptian had been a servant of an Amalekite who had been on the raid of Ziklag. This almost sounds too lucky to be true. So remember that God is orchestrating these events. The enemies of God, the Amalekites, the same Amalekites who God had commanded Saul to devote to his destruction, in 1 Samuel 15, are eating and drinking and dancing. They're having their own nightclub outside in the desert. And David comes with his men and strikes down the Amalekites. David and his men recover everything. Note as well that 400 Amalekite young men escape from David on camels. But wait, David himself only has 400 men with him. So just thinking the, how outnumbered David would have been and God still delivering everyone, delivering everything into David and his men's hands. David came back to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David into battle. And there are some wicked and worthless fellows in David's group who didn't want to share any of the loot from the battle. But David sets a precedent for when he would be king. The one who goes into battle and the one who stays by the baggage shall all share alike. And notice the reason why. They should share alike because this is what the Lord has given to them. They did not earned this loot with their fancy swordsmanship. God delivered David and his men. God gave this band into their hands. 
and so the spoil belongs to God. Again, in thinking back to Saul and the Amalekites earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, this is the attitude that Saul lacked, that the spoil belongs to God. At the end of chapter 30, David sends spoil to the elders of Judah as a present. David is showing his thankfulness to the elders of Judah in the places where he and his men roamed, and he would appreciate their support one day soon. So what should we take from this story of God's deliverance of his anointed king? In these two stories, David stared death in the face in a way that probably you and I have never faced. And especially in the story of David's response to the Amalekite raid, David strengthened himself in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we also are faced with situations in which we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord. In trials and difficulties, we're reminded of our need for God, where we must remember truth about who God is and truth of God's promises to us. But it's also helpful to remember that God's promises to us are not the same as God's promises, God's specific promises to David. God had specifically promised that David would be <coughs> king. So he could rightly deduct that at that time it was not his time to die. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't have a specific promise like that. So what has God promised to his people? Will God stop us from getting fired? Will God stop us from getting cancer? God hasn't promised those things for us. If you've been coming to this church for a while, you probably have already rejected ideas of a, of a prosperity gospel, a gospel that, that twists the gospel by adding health and wealth as promises for the Christian. But even when in the back of our minds we know that health and wealth is not promised to the Christian, it's, it's still so easy for us to, to start thinking on these lines. Well, maybe God will not put me in the crazy rich Asians category, but at least he'll put me in the successful Shanghai expat category, or the American dream fulfilled category, or the China dream fulfilled category. But friends, not, that's not the focus of God's promises to us. God does speak clearly about providing for his people, how he, he cares for the birds, he cares for the flowers of the fields, and he does care, he will provide. But, but if riches would hurt our relationship with God, if it would feed an idol in our life, then we could pray with Paul that we would not become too rich or too poor. 
So what is the focus of God's promises for us? Over and over again in the New Testament, God has us look past our circumstances and consider what God is doing in us. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, we read, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And the blessing at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So God's promises for the Christian are focused on our holiness. They're focused on what kind of person we'll be by the time that we die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. And so suffering is expected in the Christian life. Now that doesn't make it any easier when it happens. But when we do suffer, we can hold on to the, the promises of God that he will keep us until the end. And he is doing his good work of making us more like Jesus. We also should remember that there's much going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. But we can trust him with those things as well. For David, this trial was an opportunity for him to be reminded of his need to trust in the Lord, and God chose to reward his faith. That brings us to our second point, God's judgment on his rejected king. Chapter 31, God's judgment on his rejected king. Now the Philistines, reading in chapter 31, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. God had just given David victory. But we already knew from the prophecy in chapter 28 that today Saul and his sons would die. 
Here, God judges Saul for his sin and God removes Saul as king. In seeking a medium for guidance in chapter 28, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and in Saul's attitude towards God, Saul had aligned himself with God's enemies. And God used his own enemies to judge Saul. So the way it happens is told in the story. Saul is badly wounded. He wants his armor bearer to finish him off. But his armor bearer is unwilling to put a hand against Saul and Saul commits suicide. Until the end, Saul is in fear. He's in fear of what the Philistines might do to him. He's thinking on his own self. And do you remember who formerly was Saul's armor bearer? It was David. But David's far from this battle scene. This is a sad way to end Saul's story. Saul's body fastened to a wall and his armor in the temple of a Philistine goddess. But there is a, a glimmer at the end. Did you see that? Of something done that is right and good. Back at the very beginning of Saul's reign in chapter 11, God's spirit had rushed upon Saul and God used Saul to lead his people to deliver the men of Jabesh from the Ammonites. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead had not forgotten. They had not forgotten what Saul had done, empowered by God's spirit. They crept past enemy lines and gave King Saul a proper burial and they mourned the death of Saul. This does not erase the sadness of how Saul's life ended, but it does remind us of how Saul was used by God at the beginning of his reign. Perhaps it may make some also think like what, what could have been. We could sum up Saul's life basically like an obituary in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, which says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That is a sad way to be remembered. He broke faith with the Lord. He disobeyed God's command. And God's justice does come down. As Hannah saying, the wicked will be cut off in darkness. But as sad as the end of Saul's reign is, this opens the way for David to be king. You can't have more than one king at a time. As we saw earlier in this book, David also understood that at some point God would judge Saul and Saul would die. In David's own words, speaking of Saul to, to one of his men, when his man is, is excited basically to, to kill Saul, David says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. The Lord forbid 
that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David believed God's promises and he respected Saul's office because God had put him there. It would be God who would judge Saul when the time came. And the time has come. The king of Israel is dead. David will mourn over Saul and his friend Jonathan at the beginning of 2 Samuel. But for now, this first book of Samuel ends here. In the last several chapters of 1 Samuel, we continue to have David and Saul contrasted for us. We have David seeking the Lord and God answering his prayers. We have Saul seeking out a medium after the Lord is silent. We have God giving David and his men victory over the Amalekites. We have Saul and his men defeated at the hand of the Philistines. There's much that bodes well for Israel in having a king who would fear the Lord. But we have seen evidence of David's sins and his flaws already. And in the book of 2 Samuel, when David reigns as king, he will sin in grievous ways. But even so, God will be faithful to his promises to David. God's promises to David are not based on how good a king he will be. God's promises are based on God's own grace shown to David. David's throne, as we will see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, would be established forever. But as we read through the grand story of the Bible, it seems like there's a point in which David's throne ends. We think on when Israel was taken into captivity. At different times they were ruled by foreign powers. There was no king sitting on David's throne. But God's people had not forgotten the promise of a Messiah. God's people had not forgotten the promise of a future king in the line of David. A few weeks ago we celebrated Christmas. Time flies, doesn't it? But remembering the birth of Jesus. And the authors of the Gospels want to make very clear Jesus' identity as a descendant of David. At Christmas time, we might still glaze over the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, but these are pointing to Jesus' lineage, Jesus' identity. And as you read through the story of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the identity of Jesus is made clearer and clearer. In hearing several sermons from Luke, or in the book of Luke recently at WSBC, we have the title repeated, Jesus, Son of David. Now David would die and he would be buried, but there would be a king greater than David. A descendant of David, Jesus, the Son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the eternal King, Jesus, who David calls Lord. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I imagine you don't have much bad to say about Jesus. You might say you respect Jesus as a teacher. You might say you respect the way that Jesus lived his life. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't get to just stop there. You don't get to decide 
who Jesus is to you. Jesus is the rightful king of the universe and he deserves your worship. Sometimes we talk about God's sovereignty. And sovereignty is a long word, but we, if we just think about what it means for a second, we, we think of the sovereign of a nation, the king or the queen of a nation. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God being the king over this world and over history. The good news that Christians talk about is good news for those who have rejected God as king. And all of us were people who rejected God as king. And this sinful attitude towards God leads us further into sin. But God in his goodness sought to bring us out of this attitude of rejection of God. God sent his son Jesus to show us who he is and to die for the penalty of our sins on the cross. Rejecting God as king when he is our rightful ruler can be likened to, to dishonoring the true king of the universe in a way that should result in our death. But because of God's kindness to us, he sent his son, King Jesus, not to live a life of royalty, but to live and die in our place. But King Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave and he sits on his royal throne at the right hand of God the Father. The response that Jesus calls on us is to make is to turn away from our sins and to trust in Jesus, to believe in him for salvation from our sins. In following the story of 1 Samuel, God saved David more than once from his enemies and from death. Because of David's greater son, Jesus, God makes a way for us to be saved from the death that we deserve. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, keep asking questions about who Jesus is. Keep asking questions about the good news. And our prayer is that you realize that King Jesus is worthy of your worship. And for all of us, let us never tire of the grand story of the Bible. Let us never tire of how God's word shines a spotlight on who God is and what he has done. Let us never tire of how it points to Jesus, the son of David, reigning as king. As respected, as good of a king King David would be, we needed a greater king, a perfect king. And God in his kindness and mercy sent his son Jesus. Born in David's royal line, in David's hometown of Bethlehem, we have a king who is worthy of all honor and glory. We have a king who is worthy of all praise. We have a king who died for us and rose again from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of God and who will return to judge, who himself calls himself, as we heard in Revelation earlier, the shoot and descendant of David. The story of 1 Samuel contrasts two earthly kings, a king rejected and a king to be, but it does so in a way that points forward to the king of kings, 
And for Jesus, that ancient blessing, O King, live forever, actually is true. So let us go to our God now in prayer and thank Him for our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for You are God and we thank You for sending Jesus. Jesus, we praise You for You are the King. We thank You for hearing our prayers, for mediating before the Father. And Jesus, we, we thank You for sending Your Spirit to empower us to, to live and to grow more like Christ. Lord, would you be changing us? Would you be working in us? Father, would we have hearts that seek to honor you as king over our whole lives? In Jesus' name, amen.